Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. So uh, Edward and Thomas have the handouts, and if you want a handout, make sure to hold your hand up, and uh, they'll make sure to get you one. Margo's in the back. She's got the worship packets, so if you want one of those, Dr. Mike mentioned earlier, then uh, see Margo before you leave with the worship packets. Uh, one reminder for you as far as an upcoming note on February the 5th, so that would be not this Sunday, but next Sunday, we'll have our first member meeting of the year, 5.30, that'll take place in our sanctuary, we'll provide some updates on kind of where we are uh, with our budgeted giving or giving from the previous year, 2022, which was far above our budgeted receipts, but we'll try to give you more of a specific update then some reports and updates on things going on in the life of the church. We'll have about six of those member meetings through the course of the year. And so February 5th is the first one put on your calendar for 530. Uh, Some other things that are going on in a couple of weeks on a Wednesday night. We've got a mission partner that'll be here. Uh, Our team that has been to El Salvador on a number of occasions, student ministry and TAD, we're going to listen to one of the, the mission partners in that organization. They're going to be here and Tad's going to kind of walk through that. That'll be Wednesday night, February the 8th. That'll be here in this uh, Bible study time to take place. Uh, A couple things that we're going to do, we're beginning the doctrine of the Holy Spirit tonight. And so we'll look tonight at his uh, work uh, or his personhood, who he is. And then we'll, we'll look next week at the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives as Christians, his work and his ministry. Uh, And then, of course, February the 8th will be uh, Mission Partner Night. And then after that, we'll look at a relatively controversial topic. This will be February the 15th, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I say controversial, you know, we're Baptist, we're we're not Pentecostal, we don't practice speaking in in tongues here, but we'll talk a little bit about what that looks like uh, biblically. So we'll look at that on February the 15th. So that's kind of where we're headed with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. All right, though most of you should have your hand out by now, and so we're going to get started by talking about the role of the Holy Spirit. Now, what I'm going to ask you to do, uh, we're not going to read every one of the verses that's listed in front of you, but we are going to look at a few of them because I think they're tremendously important for us to grasp the work of the Holy Spirit. When we think about God, we think about God as Father. We rightly pray to God as Father. We're taught to. Jesus said, pray this way, our Father who is in heaven. We rightly, as Christians, um, make Christ preeminent. We focus on Him. He is who gets our attention. Our praise team Sunday sang a song that talked about magnifying Jesus Christ. He is to be the focus of our attention As Christians, He is the reason we can be saved. He is God in human flesh. I think, unfortunately, as Christians, sometimes we neglect the role and ministry of the Holy Spirit in part because the role and ministry of the Holy Spirit is mystical or mysterious. Certainly, we know He's active in our lives. Certainly, we know He's present. But what is His role in terms of being a part of the Godhead, being a part of the Trinity, a person in the Trinity. How do we make sense of that? And so what I want to do tonight is just walk through some biblical passages 
that tell us several things about the Holy Spirit. We're not going to look at all the passages we could look at. We are going to look at several of them. One that we need to get, make sure that we're very clear on at the outset, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God. Okay? When we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're not talking about a second-class deity. We're not talking about a servant to the deities. We're not talking about uh, a, a force, like an, an unknown force. We're talking about the third person of the Trinity. Notice, if you will, in Acts chapter 5. This is one of the more troubling passages in all the Bible. should scare all of us. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but you have lied to God. In verse um, 3 there, verse 4 rather, he says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Very next verse, he says, you've lied to God. Peter is equating with utter clarity the Holy Spirit to the Godhead. Now, what ended up taking place in that passage is that God struck down uh, Ananias dead, and then his wife came in and told the same lie her husband told, and God struck her dead. But I don't think God struck them dead because they didn't give all the proceeds. Okay, I don't think God expects us to give everything that we have if you have a paycheck. You can, and, and some of us probably could and could live. I think the expectation, though, is that we're honest about what we give. They told a lie about what they gave. They said they, gave it for, they sold it for a certain amount, and they, gave, they kept back some of it. They lied to the Holy Spirit, and God struck them dead. It, it was a warning to the early church to be people of integrity and righteousness. But the implication for our purposes tonight is the Holy Spirit is described as God. God, uh, an, another aspect of the deity of the Holy Spirit found in uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 11 and 12. The Spirit knows and gives what the Father gives. So God the Father has a purpose and a plan. And the Spirit knows what the Father is up to, knows what the Father is doing in the world. And as the Father gives, so the Spirit gives. So the Spirit is doing the same work that the Father is doing. On two at least two occasions, 1 Corinthians 12, which is the spiritual gift text, Ephesians 4, which is the one I'll ask you to turn to, um, Ephesians 4, there are occasions where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are mentioned specifically together as unique persons. Ephesians 4, 4, there is one body, one body, that's the church. There is one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. There's one Lord, that is Jesus Christ. There's one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. So in that text, along with 1 Corinthians, Paul articulates that there is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and they are present equally, but they're present distinctly as persons 
in the Godhead. One of my favorite phrases in all the Bible, and we've used this on a number of occasions as a benediction text at our church, comes from 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And Paul is articulating that there needs to be an understanding of the Trinity, that God as God in three persons for us as Christians. Another very fascinating passage of Scripture that underscores the identity of the Holy Spirit as God is in the baptism text in the Great Commission. Jesus said, Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. One name, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is clearly indicating at the Great Commission text that the Holy Spirit is God. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, and a number of years ago, I had the privilege of working through the book of Ephesians here at Wilkesboro Baptist Church, and we worked through this wonderful text, uh, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, a wonderful uh, letter. That, uh, that passage of Scripture, verses 3 through 14, in our English language are made up of several sentences, but in the Greek language, I've mentioned this before, that is one sentence. Paul continued phrase after phrase after phrase after phrase, indicating the salvation that we have in God through Jesus Christ. But the beauty of that in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, is that Paul affirms the role of the Father in our salvation, the role of the Son in our salvation, and the role of the Spirit in our salvation. It's a clearly articulated statement that we need God the Father to plan our salvation. Jesus the Son is the one who has accomplished our salvation through His death on the cross. And the Holy Spirit, in the Ephesians text, His role is to be the seal and affirmation of the salvation that we do have. Again, it's an affirmation of the deity of the Holy Spirit. So, we need to understand as Christians, the Holy Spirit is God. And so it is right and proper for us to praise the Holy Spirit as God. Now, next week, we're going to unpack a little deeper his work and his specific task. Uh, Why don't we sing praises to the Holy Spirit often? Well, because in the book of John, Jesus says that the role of the Holy Spirit is to point us to Christ. He has a primary task to point us to the one who is Savior and die on the cross for our sins. We'll unpack that a little more depth and a little more depth next week. Um, one thing that that is that we need to grasp too is the Holy Spirit is not an it. He is a he. A personal pronoun, not a gender neutral deity. Now, the word spirit in the Greek language is pneuma, and in the Greek language it is a gender neutral pronoun. Um, uh, word. It's, not, it's neither masculine nor feminine. And yet, in the New Testament, all of the pronoun affirmations regarding the Holy Spirit are not in the gender-neutral it sense. The pronouns are in the he sense. Uh, and the reason that's important is because in our contemporary culture, we have all of these concepts of interwoven deities. So if you take Hinduism, Hinduism believes that there's this over uh, under encompassing force that permeates all of life, and sometimes that kind of mindset 
bends itself into the life of Christians who say, okay, that's the way the Holy Spirit is. He's just like a force that moves in and out of all things. Or we can adopt the language that, that Star Wars would use with the, with the force, which George Lucas picked up on Eastern mythologies with that ter- very terminology. That's not the way the Bible describes the Holy Spirit. The Bible does not describe the Holy Spirit as an inanimate force, as an it. The Bible describes the Holy Spirit as a person, a person who works. Let me walk through a bunch of these verses that highlight the person and work of the Holy Spirit. First of all, He knows and thinks. We've already referenced that. The Holy Spirit knows things. Well, persons know things. Plants don't know things. Persons know things. John 14, 26, He teaches. Jesus said specifically to His disciples that the role of the Holy Spirit after He left um, earth after he was resurrected and he rose into heaven, the role of the Holy Spirit was to guide us into all truth, was to teach us. If you know things biblically, if, if you come to understand what the Bible teaches about a subject or an issue from your reading of Scripture, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. It is a unique role that the Holy Spirit helps us to understand God's Word. The Bible is spiritually discerned, Paul says, to those who are followers of Jesus. The Holy Spirit helps us understand His Word. Let me pause for just a second and uh, and ask for your prayers for understanding. If you've read ahead where we're going in the book of Hebrews, we're going to finish out chapter 5 and work through chapter 6, verse 8. And that is a very challenging text of Scripture. If you doubt that it's challenging, just open it up later tonight and read it. And I get to tell you what that means on Sunday. And I was talking with Steve and Marsh earlier this evening, and I was letting them know that I've studied commentaries, and I've read commentaries all over the board, 12 or 14 of them in the last three days, to try to get a good sense of what is the text saying and how do I make the best sense of it. And most of the commentaries don't agree with one another. There's one over here, and there's another one over here, and there's another one over here, and there's another one over here. And, uh, and I think I've changed my mind two or three times in the lead-up to Sunday's sermon. I think I know what I'm going to share on Sunday. The reason I'm mentioning that to you is I need the Holy Spirit's guidance. I need it every week. I'm grateful that most of the Bible, I'll say this again Sunday, most of the Bible is plain. It's not really hard to understand the intention of the biblical author and what he's telling us. Most of it's very, very plain. But some of it is not as plain as we'd like it to be, and that's where Hebrews 6 falls. And so maybe in the course of your next few days, you can pray for me that the Holy Spirit will do a good job. Well, Holy Spirit always does a good job teaching, that I'll do a good job listening to the Holy Spirit as I try to make sense of that passage of Scripture in the book of Hebrews. John 15, 26, the Holy Spirit witnesses, testifies to the work of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. John 16, 7 and 8, the Holy Spirit convicts. He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Let me make an application here for evangelism. Some of you, some of us over the years have wondered, how in the world can I convince someone that they need to follow Jesus? Can I just tell you it's not your job to convince someone that they need to follow Jesus? You know what your job is and my job is? To tell them about Jesus. Share the gospel. You know whose job it is to convince them they need to follow Jesus? It's the Holy Spirit's job. 
There's not a person that is a genuine believer in Christ that the Holy Spirit did not function to bring conviction to their soul about their sin and give them the faith that they need to have in relationship with Christ. Every single converted person, the Holy Spirit did that work of conviction and that work of changing in their life. Every single, every single person that is a follower of Jesus. It's our job to communicate. How does the Holy Spirit convict? <laughs> Through the message of the gospel. When the gospel is communicated, verbally one-on-one, or when the gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit works. He convicts. John 3, 5 through 7, he regenerates. Jesus is very clear with Nicodemus in that text that it is the role of the Holy Spirit to make alive. He's the one that brings us to life. He's the one that gives us life. If you were dead and now you're alive in Christ, it's the work of the Holy Spirit to do that. And Jesus makes it very clear that it's the Holy Spirit's job to regenerate. In Acts, he directs and he commands, Acts 8, 29. Gives guidance and instruction. He performs miracles. Acts 8.39. It's the Holy Spirit that gets the credit for the miracles. Acts 13.2 and 4. He calls and sends forth to service. In, in that place, he say, the text says that he set apart Paul, and I believe it's Paul and Barnabas in that, on that occasion, to go out and be missionaries and take the message of the gospel to unbelieving Jews, and then ultimately take the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. One thing that I think would encourage us, and maybe even shift a little bit of the way we read, is when we read the book of Acts, we should read it as the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. It's the work of God through the Holy Spirit through His church. Because the very outset of the book, the disciples are waiting on the Holy Spirit in the upper room, and in chapter 2, you have the Holy Spirit filling them and empowering them to speak and preach the gospel. And then everything that takes place from chapter 2 to chapter 28 in the spread of the gospel is by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. You shall receive power, Jesus says, Acts 1.8, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses. So really, the Holy Spirit is the primary uh, empowerment of the church in the book of Acts. It's not Peter and James and John and Paul that are so important in the book. I mean, they have their role to play, but it's the Holy Spirit that is working through them. Now, one thing that would be encouraging for you in thinking about the work of the Holy Spirit in your own life, particularly in the book of Acts, if you'll read that and look for all the instances of the Holy Spirit in the book. Read it through that lens, and what you're going to see is that he is the primary functional minister and worker through the church in the book of Acts. How about this one in Romans 8, 26? He intercedes. I mentioned this briefly a couple of weeks ago in a sermon that Jesus intercedes for us, certainly does as our high priest. and The writer of Hebrews is going to repeat that theme in chapter 7. Uh, so Jesus is interceding for us. Okay, Jesus is praying for us, right? Some of you ask me to pray for you, and I do my best to pray for you when I get asked to pray for you. Some of you pray for one another. Some of you have asked others to pray for you. That's fantastic. I think we all ought to pray. We all ought to pray a lot. Jesus is praying for you. You ever thought about that? Jesus the Son is interceding on your behalf. He knows exactly what you need. So I promise you his prayers are right. And here's another thing. The Holy Spirit is praying for you. 
Romans 8.26 says, The Holy Spirit is praying for us with groanings that are too deep for words. In other words, when we don't know what to pray, if we will trust in our God who loves us, the Bible says the Holy Spirit is praying for us, groaning for us on our behalf. That's one of the reasons we ought to pray. And some of you have been at places, and I have recently been at places where I just didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to pray. I didn't know how to pray. I didn't know how to bring this need before God because I didn't know exactly what He wanted to do in the situation. The grief seemed beyond my ability to know what to pray for. The situation was bigger than me. Okay, well, that shouldn't bother any of us because the Holy Spirit is praying for us. And what I mean by bother is that we shouldn't then feel helpless and hopeless and that, oh, my goodness. No, that's the place where we move to the dependence on the power of the Spirit in our lives. And really, that's where we need to get to as followers of Jesus, where we recognize that it's the Holy Spirit who is interceding for us. Not only that, Romans eight fourteen, the Holy Spirit guides us, gives us direction. Uh, he, he speaks to us, shows us what we need. Ephesians four thirty, the Holy Spirit can be grieved. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It is possible for Christians to grieve the Holy Spirit. It indicates that he's a person. All of these activities are the activities of a thinking person, a person who is engaged in the life of the world. Inanimate forces do not do any of these things. But the Holy Spirit does all of these things. He loves Romans 15.30. 1 Corinthians 12.11, he distributes gifts. And I, we won't stop here long. Um, but in, a, in three or four weeks when we move to the, the, the subject of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts, we'll unpack this a little bit deeper. But if you have a gift of the Holy Spirit to function in the life of the church, to edify the life of the church, and, and there, you can read those gift lists in 1 Corinthians 12 or Ephesians 4 and other places, Roman, uh, Romans uh, chapter 12, and read those lists. If you have one of those gifts, whether it's faith or generosity, or helps, or encouragement, or discernment, or preaching, or teaching, or evangelism. You didn't get that because you're a good person. You didn't get those gifts because you're nice. You didn't get those gifts because you're obedient. Those are gifts of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible expressly says the Holy Spirit's job is to distribute those gifts. He wants the church to be full of people who have gifts in order to edify, that is, build up the body of Christ and spread the good news of the gospel. And I believe every Christian, every follower of Jesus, has at least a spiritual gift. I really believe we have more than one spiritual gift, but at least one. And every one that he gives us, he expects us to use. Let me pause just a second and say this lovingly to you. I look out across the room and I see a lot of people who are serving in a lot of places. I see some of you that may not be serving. If you're not serving, you have a gift. Why aren't you serving? Let's find a place for you to serve and use the gift God's given you. Every one of us should be. Sorry. I'll stop, I'll stop meddling in, in your time and schedule. And yeah, That's right, Vince. Sometimes we do that as preachers. We just, we just pause for a second in a plate. But yeah, we need to find a place to serve because the Holy Spirit's gifted us. He distributes gifts. How about this one? Acts 16, 6 through 11. He forbids 
Sometimes he forbids, and we don't understand why. I know that was the case in Acts 16. Paul wanted to go to Asia to preach the gospel. He was on the pathway. He had a plan. He, had, he was ready to go to Asia to preach the gospel. And the Holy Spirit stopped him and said, you're not going to Asia. And of course, then Paul had the vision to go into Macedonia. And the Holy Spirit forbade him and redirected him. The Holy Spirit has the right to do that in our lives. He has the right to put a check on us and say, hold on, you're going too fast or you're not going the right way. And the only way we know when that takes place, is if we're walking in being filled with the Spirit and walking with the Lord. And we'll, we'll unpack how, what does that look like and how do we do that as followers of Jesus. Probably not get there tonight. We will work on that some next week. But, but the implication is that we surrender to the will of God in our lives on a regular basis. And He can put a check up. He can say, hold on, this isn't what you need to do. He can forbid. Acts 10, 19-21, the Holy Spirit can be obeyed. We've already referenced Acts 5, 3 through 4, he can be lied to. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 31 that the Holy Spirit can be blasphemed. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is what Jesus identifies as the unpardonable sin. Others uh, would look at Hebrews chapter 6 and find the unpardonable sin there. I don't think they're really equated with one another, not particularly, at least specifically. I can't find a connection between Matthew 12 and Acts 6. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, I believe, is a rejection of, ultimately, rejection of Jesus, but a rejection of the work of the Spirit that draws us to Jesus. It's denying the fact that Jesus is the way to heaven. And when there's an, there's an absolute, without question, rejection of that gospel message, ultimately that sin can't be forgiven. In fact, and I'm not sure this is entirely helpful, but I think it sets the focus correctly the sin that God will not forgive is the sin of unbelief in himself. Okay, a murderer can be forgiven. Uh, an adulterer can be forgiven. A liar can be forgiven. Uh, a, pr- a prideful person can be forgiven. But a person who, ought, who intentionally, willingly, forever holds on to unbelief will not be forgiven. There won't be an opportunity for that person to become a convert after death. It's not there in Scripture. And so what Jesus is saying is that the Holy Spirit can be blasphemed, can be absolutely rejected, resisted to a point where there's not forgiveness for that person. He can be resisted, Acts 7.51. That's Stephen's message to the Sanhedrin. He said, you always resist the Holy Spirit just like our forefathers did. And how did they resist the Holy Spirit? They didn't listen to the Word of God. I mean, it's not some mystical thing where the Holy Spirit is talking to us in our ears and we're stopping our ears, up, our spiritual ears up so we can't hear. No, how does the Holy Spirit speak to us? He speaks to us, folks, through the plain teaching of God's Word. That's how He speaks. He does speak through the still small voice that, that talks to us in, on the inside. That does happen. But that still small voice can be misunderstood, okay? I know plenty of people who have come to me and said, God's telling me to do this. I'm listening to God about this. And God's not talking to them. It was last night's dinner. Or it, it was, you know, their own kind of made-up stories of what they think they, that they want to do. And so they're talking to themselves internally, blaming the Holy Spirit 
for that. Uh, and then they end up doing what they believe God's telling them to do, and it ruins their life. And how I know that is because many of the things that people have said, God wants me to do this, are not in line with what God's Word says. And so the Holy Spirit can be resisted. How do we make sure we're not resisting the Holy Spirit? Well, it's the second time my watch has done that today. Um, how do we make sure we, we don't resist the Holy Spirit? We listen to God's Word. We let God's Word be our guide and be our pattern for living. How about this one, Hebrews 10, 29? The Holy Spirit can be insulted. Let's read that verse. We'll come to it in due course in our study of Hebrews, but this is a, a challenging statement. Begin in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace or insulted the Holy Spirit? The one major point that I think we need to remember from the book of Hebrews and all of the warning passages, and I'll unpack this in depth Sunday, is the fact that the warning passages are designed to show us that if we ignore what God has plainly said in the Gospels, in the teaching about Jesus, in the opportunity to follow Jesus, if we ignore that, then we can't expect God's grace and mercy. And, and, and the Holy Spirit is actively working through the message of the Gospel to bring people to conversion. It's what God's doing in the world. It's what the Holy Spirit is doing in the world. And so here's who that ought to break our hearts for. Ought to break our hearts for those who've heard the gospel and not listened. And I know some of you have people you love dearly that they're in that condition. They've heard the gospel and they've ignored it and they have rejected it and they have and if that remains the pattern, then the text says that that is an insult or an outrage to the Holy Spirit. And that's a dangerous place to be. And that's one of the reasons why the book of Hebrews is filled with warnings. And one of the reasons it's filled with warnings in a way to draw us as a church back to a right relationship with Christ or as close as we possibly can. And to pray for those who are in a wrong relationship with Christ. Francis Schaeffer, I've given you a quote there about the communion of the Holy Spirit pulling from... Um, Second uh, Corinthians thirteen fourteen, Schaefer writes, The communion or communication of the Holy Spirit speaks of the Holy Spirit as the agent of the Trinity, wherein Christ could promise in John 14, not only that Christ would not leave us as orphans, but that both He and the Father would come to us, come to us through the person of the Holy Spirit. Surely, as we look at the book of Acts, we find in the early church, not a group of strong men laboring together, but the work of the Holy Spirit bringing to them the power of the crucified and glorified Christ. Schaefer writes, it must be for us also. If we want God's power to be at work in our church, in our ministry, in, in your life and in my life, it's not going to come because we're wise or smart or bright or intelligent. It's going to come because the power of the Holy Spirit is at work through us. I've tried to quote uh, authors and commentators 
in sermons and in Bible studies and doctrinal studies. I try to do that when somebody writes something better than I can say it. Okay? And sometimes we, we get that. Sometimes there are some authors who just put things a certain way that it's helpful for us to digest those, those themes or those ideas. But one thing I, I do want you to understand about, about me, I, just because I quote somebody doesn't mean I agree with them on everything they write. Okay? I, I don't agree with everybody about everything. I've read enough over the years to know that I probably don't agree with anybody about everything. Uh, there are areas of disagreement I have with people I greatly respect in terms of their interpretation of Scripture. I've read two commentaries this week on dealing with Hebrews chapter 6 of men that, that I, I know from afar, but what I mean is I've read their other writings. I know where they serve. I know their ministries. I respect them greatly, and I disagree with them on the way that they deal with Hebrews chapter 6. So just because I quote somebody doesn't mean that you need to go out and buy all their books and say, okay, Pastor Chris is good with everything they, they write and teach and say. I'm not, but it is worth our while to be challenged by what we read. I do intentionally read some people that I know I'm going to disagree with on this subject or that subject because that helps shape uh, my theology. I'm, I'm not saying go out and read a bunch of pagans. I don't think that's necessarily wise for us to do. But it is okay to read broadly and read enough to be challenged. Does that make sense? If you've got a real question about a commentary or a direction or a book, I can provide some sort of guidance, but I'm not an expert on a lot of things, uh, so, so I, I provide some guidance. But uh, nevertheless, if, if I quote somebody, it doesn't mean I believe everything. Uh, in, in fact, that's particularly true when we quote people who are way, way older than us. And Luther has some really good things to say. But Luther's latter years, he became an anti-Semite, probably because of some physical problems and some spiritual issues that he was dealing with. I mean, he was running from the Catholics who were trying to kill him for the entirety of his ministry after the nailing of the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church. He had fights with the devil where he threw ink blots at the wall, wall, and he had boils that he dealt with because he didn't bathe regularly. And he probably drank too much beer. So put all those things together, and the latter part of Luther's theology is not as sound as the part that says we're saved by faith. I'd say the same, and much of the same is true about John Calvin. I quote him quite often. I like what Calvin says about a lot of things, but Calvin presided over the death of a heretic because there was a person in Geneva who wouldn't recant a heretical belief, and he presided over them in death. And there are other things about Calvin. Neither Calvin nor Luther were uh, believed in baptism by immersion. And they both believed in pedo-baptism, baptized babies. So it, I just say that to say it's okay for us to read people who are going to challenge us one way or the other. I used to tell my Bible college students that uh, we're all going to wake up in heaven one day and have some of our theology corrected. None of us are going to walk in having it all figured out. Uh, and that's probably good for all of us. So we should retain a level of humility, even about what we, what we know and what we think we believe. Uh, and, and I'm going to preach Sunday from Hebrews 6, even, where, even then I'm going to land in a place, and I'm going to land in a place, and I'm going to tell you how I take the text. But I'm going to, take, I'm going to ask you to listen humbly, and I'm going to ask you to... I, I'm not going to be upset if you might take it differently and disagree with me. Because 
I mean, lots of people disagree on that text. So there's a level of where we've got to take some things with some humility. Let me talk about three takeaways, and we'll finish up for the night. Number one, without the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, our salvation would plainly not be possible. You and I cannot be converted if the Holy Spirit didn't convict us, didn't awaken our hearts, didn't enlighten us, didn't regenerate us, didn't change us. It's not possible. We absolutely need the Holy Spirit in order for us to be believers. Your children who need Jesus. Some of you are in the room, you've got children downstairs, and you're praying that they'll come to faith in Jesus. And some of you have some children that have come to faith in Jesus and some that haven't. And I'm, there are folks in the church that I'm praying for their kids, and we've talked about their kids and where they are on this journey of faith. And I want to tell you something. They will come to faith in Jesus when the Holy Spirit draws them sufficiently for them to experience conviction and salvation. We're going to encourage them. We're going to pray for them. We're going to preach to them. We're going to share the gospel with them. I hope you as moms and dads are doing that at home. I hope you're encouraging them and praying for them and talking with them regularly about the gospel. But it's the Holy Spirit's job to bring them to salvation. And and you didn't just decide one day I'm going to become a Christian. The Holy Spirit's the one that brought you to the place where you became a Christian. That does some really encouraging things for us folks. Number one, it reminds us that God is the one who's the author of salvation. It's not up to me and you. It's it's not in our hands. It's not something we control. I can't make it happen. That's why you don't hear me um, do any sort of kind of mechanism of of trying to manipulate people into walking an aisle or praying a prayer or making a decision. Because those things can be means that display one's conversion, but they can also be false assurances that never really indicate real faith. Holy Spirit's job is to bring salvation bring conviction, bring awareness. And if we're saved, we're saved because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you a second takeaway. Through the Spirit and the work of the Holy, or through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, we can know God. I can't explain this. I spent 20 years trying to figure it out myself. How in the world does God and the person of the Holy Spirit indwell the believer? That's a mystery, folks. For every one of us in the room, the followers of Jesus, the Bible is absolutely clear that the Holy Spirit is the seal of our salvation and that while in the Old Testament the Holy Spirit functioned with the people of God and, and, was, and fell upon the people of God in certain instances, he fell upon David, he fell upon Moses, he fell upon some of the prophets. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was working around and with the people of God. The New Testament, the Holy Spirit is indwelling every person who's a follower of Christ. I can't see him in you, and you can't see him in me. I didn't see him when he came into me, but I know he's there. It's mysterious, gloriously mysterious. But what that means is that we can know God. The Holy Spirit is there inside of us to give us the mind of God, to guide us as we read and understand Scripture, to help us as we pray. So you want to know God? Then get a good dose of the primary means of knowing God, which is the ministry of the Word and the ministry of the Holy Spirit that helps us understand the Word. Folks, that's how we know God. That's how we know God better. Thirdly, Because the person and the work of the Holy Spirit is divinely mysterious, 
We must allow God's word, not experiences, to guide our understanding. It's going to kind of serve as an undergirding takeaway for some of what we're going to talk about in the weeks to come. I I know uh, uh, that there are denominations and there are Christians who are going to take a different approach to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit than we're going to take here at Wilkesboro Baptist Church. Uh, I know some, some of you may take a different approach than I do on some of these subjects. And that's, that's okay as long as we let the Scripture be our guide for interpretation and we're drawing a basis of understanding from Scripture. We don't have to absolutely agree on everything. But here's what we've got to be cautious about. When we start building doctrinal truths from personal experiences and not from biblical affirmations, that's when those experiences become problematic. Anybody can have an experience, okay? There are all sorts of belief systems, worldviews, religions, where experiences are had, and those experiences are very real. I mean, very, very real. They are very, very felt. But that doesn't make them true, nor does that make them universal or right. And that same thing can, be, can happen among people who call themselves Christians. When we make our experiences the universal attestation for what is true and right. And folks, we can't do that. We've got to let Scripture be the universal attestation for what is true and right. And when we walk through some of the topics on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what does that mean? And the gifts of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and those kind of concepts that I know some of you are uncomfortable with and maybe some of you have grown up in backgrounds where, where that was the more typical experience. How do we make sense of that? Well, we need to make sense of that by letting God's Word be the guide for how we interpret those applications rather than someone saying, I've had this experience, now you need to have it too. Experience can't be the arbitrator of that, of what is true. God's Word has to be. And by the way, just as a point of confession or acknowledgement, that's why preaching Sunday on Hebrews 6 is so hard for me because it's my job to say what God's Word says, not say what my theological predispositions want me to say. All right? I shouldn't look at, and this is a challenge, and I'll mention it again Sunday, but I can do it in a little more depth here tonight. We have a tendency to say, okay, our theological lens is going to help me understand the Bible, and I'm going to read the Bible through my theological lens. Armenian theology does that. Reformed theology can do that. Calvinistic theology can do that. Um, um, uh, premillennial theology can do that. When you talk about eschatology, there are all sort of theological frameworks that we can look at the Bible and say, okay, we're going to read the Bible through this grid of theology, and then we're going to read out of Scripture, and Scripture is going to kind of, we're going to read it through that lens, and that's how we're going to interpret that passage of Scripture. And there are times that our theology actually helps us understand Scripture, but if we're not careful, what we do is we only find what we want to find in the Scripture that fits our particular theological lens or predisposition. But I don't feel like my job as your pastor is to tell you a theological framework and say, you've got to hold this theological framework. Now we've got to fit Scripture in our theological framework. I think that's backwards. 
I think my job as your pastor is to tell you this is what the Bible says, and this is what God intended with the text. And that's really hard with Hebrews chapter 6, because I'm not entirely sure what the writer was getting at. I'm working through it. I hope you'll read it and work through it. I hope at least you'll read it and you'll sympathize with me for Sunday as I try to work through it. But what I don't want us to do is just, is just have a pat answer because our theology says, okay, this is the way we look at this lens of Scripture, rather than dealing with what the text actually says, interpreting it word for word as best we can, word for word, phrase by phrase. What is the author getting at? Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 